Hello, Brighton! Hello! Uh, every time. Um, hello, I am Tom, and I work and I do new product development. Uh, it's a role I've had for a few companies now, including Yahoo and the BBC. What I do on the whole is I look at the web and I look at the direction it's going and I try and get there first. Uh, and um, when, I, when it works, when it goes well, it's really amazing, really awesome, and when it doesn't, it kind of sucks. Uh, today, uh, I have the dubious honor, <laughs> I have the dubious honor of being the warm-up act for Merlin Mann. Merlin, unlike me, is a very grumpy man. <laughs> so it's important to me that when he comes on after me, you're all really giving and loving to him. Will you do that for me? Okay, it's good, because that way I think he will learn the error of his curmudgeonly ways and start turning to the light side of really detailed typography and uh, attention to design. Uh, Merlin, unfortunately, is also known for deflating the pretensions of designers. Uh, um, this is probably a good thing, because today I'm going to give him a hell of a lot of material to work with. Oh, I've got one of these things. Right, okay, so when I was thinking about this event, uh, I tried to sort of attach myself to the, the themes, design and creativity, and I thought extensively about the way that I work and the strategies that I use to come up with ideas and develop ideas and that kind of stuff. But in the end, I kind of circled round and back to a higher order question. Um, and the question is, what is it that motivates me? Why do I do this? Not the public speaking, because I have no idea, but um, the making things. You know, what is it that gets me up in the morning? Uh, and, you know, as a community, what, are, what is our goal? What are we trying to accomplish? And once I found that question, everything kind of snapped into focus. So today I'm going to talk about the possibilities of the future that I kind of see, the things about that that excite me. I'm basically going to be talking about inspiration, which is a bit cheesy. So, you know, there you go. And my hope is that the outbreaks of the future, to use a particularly nasty phrase, that I talk about today will also be inspiring to you guys and help you go out to make the world a more interesting, creative, productive, and fun place to live in. That sound good? No, hang on. What? That's better. So fundamentally, I'm going to be talking about networks. I'm going to be talking about how the network of the web is changing, evolving, and interconnecting in completely new ways and how it's breaking free from the browser and stretching into our physical environment. I'm going to be talking about how I believe this new network we're building between services, physical or otherwise, will transform the world and the things that we build that live in the world. And, and I'm going to try and touch on some of the things that I think we need to be aware of and worry about while we're collectively creating the future. But to give you some context, I'm going to start off by talking about a very different transformative network, a very old one, constructed in ancient Persia two and a half thousand years ago. This is the Persian king Darius I, or Darius the Great. He uh, ruled over a vast empire that covers modern, covered modern-day modern Macedonia, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Israel, and stretched all the way down into northern Egypt. Honestly, today, he's mostly known for regularly attempting to invade the Greek city-states of Athens and Sparta. You may, uh, you know, in wars that lasted generations, you may have seen a rather unfortunate portrayal of his son Xerxes in that film of 300, um, uh, if you could tear your eyes away from the naked torso of Gerard Butler, which I have to be honest with you, I have trouble with. Um, 
Anyway, where was I? Uh, yes. Uh, Darius the Great. So Darius the Great, apart from uh, regularly invading um, nearby Greek city-states, was also known for constructing the world's first great road network. This is um, the Achaemenid Empire that he looked after. And as you can see, it's pretty huge. There's Egypt to the bottom left there, Saudi Arabia, Mediterranean Sea. And this is the road network. This is 2,500 years ago. According to archaeologists and contemporary reports... Um, it stretched over several thousand kilometers and united dozens of disparate people. Along the network of roads stood towers, and each one was manned with a, ho with a, a horse, a fresh horses with messengers on them, so that a message could be transmitted through the network at tremendous speed. Some of the terrain in the eastern part of here is completely insane, uh, and so it would take a very long time for messengers to get between um, towers. So they'd build them on either sides of valleys, and they'd shout across. Um, the result of this was that they could use this road network to transmit messages. An army that was 30 days' march away could receive their orders from the capital in 24 hours, in the same day. In many ways, then, this road network is not only just a huge kind of amazing kind of engineering enterprise, it is also, and I'm going to be a bit cheesy, you know, the world's first kind of information superhighway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said that out loud. Okay, um, I bring up the Royal Road because it uh, illustrates some really significant points for me. Um, firstly, that infrastructural networks can completely transform cultures, societies, so it can transform the world. And secondly, that infrastructural networks normally aren't an end unto themselves. They make other things possible. Uh, the road network made possible the communication network that allowed him to maintain his armies, to um, uh, maintain the, the coherence of his state. You could argue that the history of human progress is a, a series, a history of, of infrastructures, each built on top of the previous one, that bring us to this point today. And finally, I chose to talk about this because um, transport infrastructures, I think, are particularly interesting, the history of transport infrastructures, because over the last couple of thousand years, few thousand years, um, uh, the increase in transport infrastructure has completely transformed the way we make things and even what we can make. And I think something similar to that is happening today on the web. So before efficient transport came along, you have a small community, and what you could build was limited to the resources around you. Uh, everything you made, every built object had to be made of local materials, locally made tools. Everything had to be you know, mined, retrieved, chopped down, components made, assembled by a small group of local people. Subsequently, various other... I drew these by hand. It took me ages. Um, subsequently, over the last few thousand years, the world has changed dramatically and has become incredibly wired together. Trade and exchange has completely connected our world and made an enormous number of new things possible. From ancient Egypt, through the Silk Road, through the Industrial Revolution to the present day, trade and transport makes our modern world possible. Today, the history of pretty much any object around you is a long and intricate chain of exchange, manufacture, um, component building, transport. You know, you could trace any one object back pull it into its constituent parts, trace them back through a family tree in time, it would be impossibly intricate. Um, every object around you implicates the entire planet. Um, and, you know, if you look around you, it took a planet to make this room. 
I find that a pretty kind of extraordinary thought. So that brings me to the question, what about the web? And really my question is, well, why isn't the web like that? The raw material that we work with is data, is information in all its forms, news, weather, TV shows, product information, uh, the graph of our friends, comments, reviews, Twitter comments that we make around the place. Um, but until a few years ago, every one of the sites that we created was like a silo, like an individual village or city-state that could only work with the resources at hand. It couldn't work with any of the other stuff that was going on in the, in the environment. We had this sort of amazing web infrastructure that was going, you know, where information flowed freely, but actually it was a selection of silos with just like kind of web page links between them. The first glimmers of change were things like Amazon's web services and Flickr and then Delicious and Facebook and Google and OpenStreetMap and all these other services. The APIs that they produce uh, allow people to construct roads between services for data to travel between. And that network, that network between services, I think is as transformative as the road and trade network has been. And it's still in its early days. For you guys, it means that every uh, open site or service that you can see out there is another component that you can work with. Every piece of data that someone adds to one of those components is something that you can build against, is something you can play with. And as this network of data sources, services, and interfaces slowly wires itself together, the potential range of things that we can build increases exponentially. And that, I think, is pretty amazing. Now, I think it's pretty obvious to everyone now. You know, a couple of years ago when I, I did a talk um, uh, in a sort of earlier version of, of these kind of thoughts, I kind of said, like, Twitter is not a website. You know, the product of Twitter is not a website. The product of Twitter is um, a way of communicating with your friends. Uh, and it will do that in any way it can, um, anywhere the network touches, in any kind of you know, device or appliance. I think that's now really kind of obvious. You know, there's the website, there's their own iPad and iPhone apps, um, there's SMS, there's their APIs. And it's not just for the communication. You can use them for their social, social web structure. You can use them for uh, geo-annotations. You know, they're, they're really becoming a true connected hub of the internet, of the web of data. And this is Lanyard, obviously made by Brighton Locals, ex-Brighton Locals, um, Simon and Natalie. Uh, how many of you have seen this this week? It's absolutely extraordinary, I thought. Um, uh, they pulled this together in a very small period of time. Uh, and it's because it was built extensively from APIs from other services. Your social graph comes in from Twitter. The books and stuff comes from Amazon. All the geolocation stuff comes from Yahoo. And yet they're able to take it further and build this in almost no time at all. If they had to build everything from scratch, it would have taken much, much, much longer to build. And it wouldn't have been as useful for us either. Because the fact that they use the Twitter IDs means that that is then something else that other people can build against. You know, they all hooks together. These things are getting networked. And I really think that is transformative. And of course, there are services like Facebook who are brazenly making a play to sort of own the social graph in its entirety. They want to be the place um, for the web, you know, for the social graph on the entire thing. They want to be like a utility. I think actually they're bordering on wanting to be a monopoly. Um, uh, and, you know, they're incredibly impressive and amazing and just a little tiny bit scary. Um, I would argue that pretty much every single major trend that's hit the web over the last few years has really been about optimizing 
and improving and working towards this kind of generalized idea of a web of data of connected services. Um, social software is about the collaborative creation of, of data, of information. And all the services that have done that effectively, like Flickr and Delicious and that kind of thing, they've all made that data available because it's better, it's more useful when it's available. Uh, you know, they, they win more when they're the place you go to, use, to, to manage that stuff. The social network is a set of data about your relationships that really by itself is kind of pointless. You know, Friendster was around 10 years ago and uh, um, um, six degrees before that, and they weren't useful because they weren't connected to things people wanted to do. Um, social network works when it's connected to other things, other functions, other uses. Geolocation, similarly, it's an area that's very close to my heart. Um, geolocation is about getting one atom of data where you are, and then hybridizing that with every other service that exists on the internet to try and make all of them more relevant, more interesting, more responsive, based on you know, your context. Real-time data is about the transport. It's about making the, the mechanisms that get information between services faster, more effective, and between physical devices and the web as well. Even data visualization, I think, has like, become a really big deal partly because the amount of information and data that's on the web is escalating so quickly, the possibilities for recombination of that data has grown so much that we need new tools to kind of understand it and get a grip of it. So I kind of think it's all, you know, everything we've been doing is towards this sort of wider connected network. Now, I'm going to piss off a number of people now, uh, which is going to be quite fun. Um, when I say, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to allow you to do something really weird. Like, everyone who, who agrees to the statement, cheer. Everyone who's horrified by it, boo. Okay? Yeah? And then I will see if I have to leave the stage. <laughs> Come on, then. Work. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so, I mean, when I'm, the reason I bring this up is when I'm talking about the web of data, I'm not necessarily talking about the semantic web um, and the visions of the semantic web community. I don't want to be unfair. The visions of the semantic web community are really cool. The technologies that they use uh, are often really useful. But I don't think it's an accident that most of the stuff that's been going on in the web that unites services in, around the world has been sort of orthogonal to that community, has been sort of at arm's length from it, taking what they want and then kind of moving on. Um, my sense of why that is, I think that if you look at the semantic web, the culture, the philosophy of the community is that you sort of, um, you sort of create, you know, it's a very top-down view. You're looking down, trying to make the entire web, like, do something so that from above you can kind of process and make sense of that information in various ways. And I kind of don't think that's a, a, a really kind of in tune with the way people are motivated or work. I think the way people have actually decided to build services is in a much more dynamic way, with information flying between services and with each node in that network thinking about their priorities and their interests um, and, you know, kind of, that's kind of awesome. This is from um, the BBC TV program, Britain from Above. I'm sure you've all seen it before. But it, it's just so beautiful, I couldn't resist using it. Um, so in a way, we're back to Darius. You know, this is a transport infrastructure, a metaphor of transport in infrastructure in which in, uh, data is traveling dramatically and, and elegantly across this kind of thing, with each node operating for its own purposes, its own reasons. Honestly, 
with the web, I don't give a crap what technologies you use. You can use the semantic web if you want. I, I'm up there. I'm, I'm all for a web of data by any means necessary. That's my mantra. It works for me. But I have to be honest. Philosophically, I think the people, at, our peers at Flickr and Twitter and all these other companies have kind of got it right. A dynamic network that focuses on, on how each member benefits is going to have much more success than one that's top-down. But, of course, the future of the web isn't just limited to the web. I think it was Matt Webb who first introduced me to the history of the LCD clock and pointed out the lessons that we can learn from it. Um, clearly, when they were first created, LCDs were not cheap. Um, uh, but over time, the demand for them resulted in ever more efficient ways to produce them until, essentially, the production of them became you know, bordered on free. At that point, LCD clocks started to appear everywhere in video recorders, TV sets, cassette players, radios, car dashboards. In fact, they start appearing in places where really there's, there's almost no value or need for an LCD clock at all of any kind. And why do they do that? Because they're so bloody cheap that for the tiny amount of value that they create, it's still worth it. I think network technologies are moving in the same direction. They may not get quite as cheap as the LCD clock did, but they're still moving in that direction. A few years ago, if you said that you could get, like, for £150, an e-ink e-reader with perpetual free 3G access for the rest of your life, essentially, um, that would have seemed extraordinary. But now it's Amazon's top-selling product. And as the price goes down... Actually, more, another point on that one. Um, and, of course, the Kindle isn't a computer. It can't do the same things as a computer. The kind of stuff from years ago with the network-enabled fridge, it was like, we'll put a whole bloody computer in this thing. We'll make a browser. It'll do everything a computer do. It'll do everything a computer can do and everything a fridge can do. <laughs> you know, how could, go, how could we go wrong? Um, uh, huh. um, but now we've realized that as, as the price goes down, actually, it doesn't really matter. Like the, uh, the, all it has to do is be valuable in that context, more valuable than it costs to make. And so I think we can see that price drop and network connectivity moving into more and more products. Now, there's at least 40 years of academic work on pervasive computing and pervasive networking, and honestly, you know, I, I couldn't go into depth on it, even if I'd read more than a tiny fraction of it. Um, uh, but there are a couple of ideas that I'd like to sketch around really quickly. First one is the awesome SPIME. Um, this is a... Um, how many people know about SPIMEs at all? Okay, that's actually good. I can, it means I can talk about it without feeling like an idiot. Um, this is Bruce Sterling's concept, and it's, an, it's the idea of an object that is network-connected and can report its location all the time in space and time. Um, one of Bruce's con conjectures is that if you do this with an object, then it could transform what ownership means. Because, you know, like, why do I have to keep my things in my house protected from the world where I can kind of give it out to people? I always know it belongs to me. Anyone can check that. I always know where it is. You know, I mean, like, that, that actually could be pretty revolutionary and really interesting. And, of course, in the process, you're creating an object with uh, network connectivity and the, probably a unique identifier that you can kind of start collating information around annotations, the history of that object. That's kind of kind of fun. Um, another cool concept is this idea of, like, an object as a service, um, which takes Bruce's ideas, in a way, one stage further. Um, why buy a washing machine when you can get a network-enabled washing machine from a provider, and then every time you do a set of washing, you get charged over the network. Um, uh, that also means that you can track the state of the washing machine, how well it's working, how, you know, is it malfunctioning. 
You can aggregate information between various services. You can kind of, you know, you can really pull out, you know, energy consumption, a whole range of interesting data and information from that kind of stuff. So they're kind of really interesting ideas, and I'm going to come back to them a bit in a minute. But I think the, the, the idea that I think informs my sense of the future more than any other at the moment is Matt Jones and Jack Schultz's concept of MujiComp. It's my favorite slide I've ever made. This is 150 transitions in 30 seconds. Uh, so, like, the technology side of connected objects is clearly not entirely solved yet. Um, but it does seem like it's on the way. So, that, so we can start thinking about the more interesting questions. How to integrate the not network into objects in ways that make them attractive and useful? And that's a question that Matt and Jack have been exploring. Uh, um, Matt has described MujiComp as sexy and desirable UbiComp, able to be appreciated as cultural design objects rather than technology. It should be tasteful, simple, clear, clean, contemporary, and affordable in order to be invited into the home. Now, I think that's a lovely and a practical vision. I, I think at the moment there actually are some proto-examples of MujiComp out there already, and I'd like to give you a demonstration of something that I actually own and works right now that ties into another source of potentially really interesting and transformative data, which is what Matt calls personal informatics and I call instrumenting your life. Uh, so this is a stylized version of a Withings internet-enabled set of bathroom scales. Currently costs about 100 pounds, but I think we can expect the price for that for comp comparable products to drop dramatically over the next few years. When I stand on it in the morning, it weighs me, it checks my lean mass, and then it checks my fat mass, uh, and it sends it up to their site via my Wi-Fi network. It can distinguish between up to eight different people in my home uh, by remembering their kind of last weighed statistics. It is a beautiful object. It's classily designed and packaged almost like an Apple product. Uh, this is a device that wants to be invited into your home if you're prepared to pay 150 pounds for it. Um, activate. Aha, there we go. Uh, on their website, I can go and see my weight over time and my progress. Uh, as you can see, over the last few months, I have become approximately three million times more attractive. <laughs> I have a, another completely unrelated application on my iPhone called WeightBot um, uh, that can connect to the, the data at the Withings site. Uh, it's actually a much nicer interface than the website, so I can go and look at it and uh, you know, use it to keep a record of my progress. Because it's so gorgeous, I look at it you know, pretty, pretty much every day. I can stand on the scales, wander off. Later in the day, go, oh, crap. Um, you know, standard stuff. But the scale can also, if you want, post your weight to Twitter. <laughs> I have a secret account where I post my weight um, because I'm too ashamed for my normal Twitter followers to see it. But I'm going to share it with you today. Uh, the Twitter name is How Fat Is Tom? <laughs> But here's where it gets even more interesting, because if you do a search on Twitter for Withings, or why things, you'll see thousands of other people from all around the world also putting their weight online uh, in pretty much exactly the same way, normally in a few set formats, sometimes in Japanese. Um, uh, generally, it's all part of keeping them motivated as part of the process and kind of keeping them, their hands away from the Jaffa Cakes, uh, which, frankly, when I'm in England, is like one of the biggest challenges. Um, 
but using Twitter's APIs, it would be pretty trivial for any programmer in this room to parse the results of this search uh, and produce a generic score of basically the average weight of Twitter users. Um, then you could get the geolocation information associated with each user, and you could say, well, people in these various places, people in Japan, people in uh, England, people in states of America, their respective um, weights. And you could do trends and maps. Are Twitter users getting fatter? For anyone who's interested, howfatistwitter.com is still available. <laughs> as is the Twitter handle, howfatistwitter. Um, now, that's a fairly trivial example, but you could follow the chain still further. There's no reason that this weight data couldn't be connected with other data that comes from like Nike Plus or from the Fitbit, which is I have clipped on here at the moment, uh, um, or with Nokia Sports Tracker, and there's no reason it couldn't be sent to health sites like Google Health and other personal informatics sites. Each service that I can connect my weight data to makes that weight data more useful, more valuable, gives me another reason to stand on it in the morning. Um, and so, you know... Uh, I think that's pretty cool. But bah, I hear you cry. Single objects connecting, contributing, and reacting pervasively to the web of data, the ever-present, ever-growing web of data, this is tedious. Uh, I want more, so I'll give you more. Uh, simple objects are only the beginning, and again, we're returning to Darius and the network of infrastructure that we actually live in. This time, though, we're working our network and layering it in to the, the um, pervasive city networks that we're all used to. We're overlaying it over buildings, cities, roads, our everyday urban infrastructure. And in the process, we have the, the, the opportunity to take cities and our environment to an entirely new level. Now, organizations like My Society and in the old days up my street have been doing really great work around these kind of areas for a long time, opening up data about cities, opening up data that's recombinable and reusable. Um, but fueled in part by U.S. stimulus money, there's this sort of insane kind of hundreds of projects going on at the moment. This is um, from uh, a TV advert from IBM talking about the smart city. I love this bit. And that guy's like, what? Um, uh, so they're really exploring what it would be to have a network-enabled network city. Code for America is making sterling efforts to help U.S. cities kind of figure out how to use the web and connected technologies to make the life of people in cities Better. That's, of course, the infamous Tim O'Reilly. And of course, the edges, fascinating people like Adam Greenfield, Ben Cerveny, the ever-present Matt Jones, Dan Hill, and many, many others are, re are outside our community, are really trying to work to theorize at the moment what networked cities could be like, how we could use them to improve our lives. But there are three projects I want to talk about in a bit more detail, fairly rapidly. The first is the London Cycle Project, which I'm sure you've, you're all familiar with. Um, this, is, this is a heavily networked piece of infrastructure, um, you can pick up a bike from any particular station, drop it off at any particular station, get billed. Um, each bark, I think, each bark, each bike is part spine uh, for reporting its location, place, and time, and part object as a service. Um, you know, you don't have to own it; you can sort of like rent it. Um, but it's laid out at city scale. Now, I haven't had a chance to ride one yet, but although it pains me to say anything positive about Boris Johnson. It's your fault, you people. Um, it does seem like a pretty cool project. And this is an even cooler project that's built on top of it, made by Tom Taylor, who I think is in the audience today. Uh, say woo, Tom. <laughs> 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 uh, 
you know, he's taken all the data from it and exposing it in really interesting ways. And just thinking about the possibilities of recombining that data with like, uh, you know, tour guides, weather systems, personal exercise and health tracking systems, you know, just really excites me. Uh, this is another pro kind of similar project going on in San Francisco at the moment. Um, and I think this is really cool. Let me see if I can play this. So you see these little white dots by the parking spaces? These are sensors which are used to determine if the parking space is free. If the parking space, you can go and check on the web or on your mobile phone to see if parking spaces are free, which in itself is kind of amazing. Um, and because they can keep track of all of this stuff over time, uh, they adjust the pricing for the parking meters in each area um, one month by month, raising it by up to 50 cents or dropping it by 25 cents um, uh, to try and optimize traffic so that in the end, there's always going to be at least one space, ideally, on any block at any given time. So that, that's designed to cut down congestion and to make everyone's lives easier. The prices of the local um, city car parks also respond similarly. So it's kind of awesome. It's a fascinating way to optimize a city by laying the network over it. One of my favorites is the last one I'm going to talk about in the cities bit. Uh, takes things to even the next level by treating the, the envi built environment as a canvas on which you can show the workings of the city. This is a proposed project by Arab for the 2012 Olympics. Um, uh, it's sufficiently insane to make my jaw drop with wonder, but unfortunately not quite sufficient, uh, insane enough to actually be built. Um, it's a huge literal cloud of orbs that would have been built above the Olympic Village and part of a system of urban informatics that would be taking information from the games and from the city and finding new ways of visualizing it, both for people outside and for people inside. You know, it's a huge smart meter display, you know, display hovering over London, filled with information about people what we're doing around it. I mean, it's totally nuts, but it's, you know, a bit like concept cars, you know. There's hints here of what the future could be like. In fact, you can expect to see a lot more things in the city over the next couple of decades. The instrumentation of buildings, cities, streets, capturing information about traffic flows, temperature, power consumption. You can expect to see building-sized displays, programmable environments, responsive facades, reactive buildings that change to sensor information or to changing tides of data on the web. Our very environment is becoming network aware, reading to, writing to, reading to, visualizing and reacting to information in the web of data. Right, so now I have to wrap up, and I've already overrun by 30 seconds, so I'm going to have to be fairly rapid. When I'm talking about the web of data, this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Sites talking to each other, buildings uh, building off each other, physical objects writing to and responding to, the, to what's going on on the web, an instrumented planet a responsive planet, a connected planet. The world I've talked about is already here in its earliest forms. We're slowly wiring it together one connection at a time. It's a new network of services built on top of the web, a network of sites that lets data flow through the world to wherever it's going to be most useful. It's escalating the speed of change. There's a chapter in Matt Ridley's brilliant Rational Optimist book called When Ideas Have Sex. Um, and it's a discussion about the extraordinary important communication networks and how they've like kind of generated the modern world. You know, if I'd read that earlier, I might have changed the name of this talk to "When Objects, Environments, and Data Have Sex," because um, really that's what we're talking about. You know, but like in a in a cool way. 
Uh, and it's that sexy future that inspires me, that makes me wonder what, what astonishing things we can collectively make. It's a future filled with extraordinary creative possibilities. But it's not all we're going to be plain sailing. Trade and transport has brought many wonders to the world, but we're all aware that those wonders have not been distributed equally. The same may be true on the future web. People will try and own and dominate data spaces. Individuals may suffer. There may be times when we need as a society to put limits and protections in place to protect um, the vulnerable. Privacy. We're, also, we're in the process of renegotiating privacy at the moment. Um, not based on what we used to use, what's physically visible, or what's physically invisible, um, but what we decide as a society should be available for people, for an individual or company to know about. I don't accept the idea that privacy is dead. I think potentially we could be entering a golden age of privacy if we can really negotiate and work out as like individuals, users, consumers, citizens, like what we think is reasonable uh, and enforce that by law. But there is a line. Rights have to be defended all the time because rights are under attack all the time. That's still true. We're going to have to work to keep that safe. And there are cultural problems too, things that the various players of our community have to work out how to do. Um, we really need open projects out there for identifiers for non-web native objects, like films and buildings and TV shows and you know, books. Um, because it, unless we can agree how to refer to those things, we can't possibly annotate them, connect all the data together around them, uh, around the entire planet. Large companies have to come to understand that, you know, well, they actually, large companies have come to understand that we need web standards, but they've yet to figure out that, like, open identifier projects and open data projects like this are equally important. Because a rising tide, in this case, will lift all ships higher than any could accomplish by themselves. It's going to take a lot of work to move us past that short-term thinking. But honestly, if there's any community that aspires to the best, that looks towards self-expression, self-realization, and positive creation, if there's any community that can address these problems, I believe it's the people of the web. I have faith in the optimistic power, uh, optimistic vision and creative power of the technology community. In particular, I have faith in you, the thinkers, designers, and builders of the next generation of the web. This is like my penultimate slide. This is a visualization from Ito World of a year of contributions to OpenStreetMap. OpenStreetMap is a free-to-use open map of the world created by thousands of people like you. Data about all the roads of our massively connected planet. This is one year of people contributing data. It's open data for anyone to build on, recombinable with anything you want, connectable with any site or service, object or environment. If this does not give you hope for the future, I honestly I don't know how, what could. It's an amazing project and a, new, and a core node of the new network we're making. And I genuinely believe that in the creation of this new network, we're changing, we're making a new world and we're extending the possible. Come a long way from Darius's transformation of Persia, but the principles are the same. Connected things transform the world, and we're connecting more and more things every day. We're building the new infrastructures, the next generations that come after us will build upon and extend further. We are the road builders of the 21st century. And that is what motivates me. That's what informs my design practice. That's what inspires my creativity. The planet on, and everything on it is both our canvas and our brush. Everything the network touches is our playground. And that's all I have. Thank you very much.